morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters. We're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, uh, bringing you what we call the American view, the founder's view of law and government. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me this morning, my two collaborators, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremy, who we call our warrior in the courtroom, who's defending the God-given right to keep and bear arms. Well, this morning, we're wrapping up our series, a three-part series here, looking at Alexander Hamilton's interpretation of the Constitution with his three reports on manufacturers. And those reports really reveal Hamilton's view of how malleable the Constitution was and how it could be formed into pretty much anything he wanted it to be formed into. And uh, Hamilton, as we've discussed in the previous two sessions, had some very particular views about uh, a national bank, which he advocated for and actually won the, uh, the argument on. And that we do not believe is constitutional, but he got that through. And then uh, we, we have explored his philosophy of economics, you might call it, which is definitely a parallel to the English mercantilism. That is big government involved in manipulating and choosing favorites in the market and, uh, you know, tariffs and taxes and all sorts of things designed for the government to really be in control of the economy rather than a true free market economy, uh, as the other founders, such as uh, Thomas Jefferson and others, argued for and strenuously believed w what, was, what would be best in the interest of these United States. And as we've gone through this series, we've seen that, sad to say, that uh, Hamilton's arguments have prevailed. And today we are largely under the kind of system he envisioned and that uh, he advocated for where the government, the federal government is involved in every minute picayune corner of the economy, manipulating, controlling, uh, trying to conjole this group or suppress that group, uh, calling out favorites. And all of these things, uh, we believe, is the opposite of what a free market economy actually looks like. Well, this morning, we're going to look at that third report. Phil, why don't you bring us your views on Hamilton's third report? Well, this is called Hamilton's Report on Manufacturers, and it uh, uh, is dated 1791. Uh, with this paragraph in an article written for the Mises Institute on October 21st, 2008, in the midst of the financial system bailouts, Thomas D. Lorenzo, the author of Hamilton's Curse, opened his article, The Founding Father of Crony Capitalism. As soon as the federal government announced its trillion-dollar bailout, for starters, of Wall Street plutocrats, defenders of the bailout pulled out what they apparently believe was their secret weapon, the myth of Alexander Hamilton as the alleged inventor of American capitalism. Hamilton, they said, would approve of the bailout. Case closed. How could anybody dispute the architect of the American economy? He then followed that with an explanation of how the financial mainstream media peddles the myth of Hamilton as the great capitalist. Forbes.com immediately published an article entitled, Alexander Hamilton versus Ron Paul, to make the point that libertarian critiques of the bailout should be dismissed. Since Hamilton was such a great statesman compared to Congressman Paul and his supporters, the Wall Street Journal Online published a piece by business historian John Steele Gordon, 
in which he argued that our real problem is that central banking is not centralized enough, called for a financial market dictator slash regulator, supported the bailout, and most importantly, blamed the current economic crisis on Thomas Jefferson. That was October of 2008. The bailouts of the George W. Bush administration would soon be followed by the bailouts of the Obama administration. The existing financial system survived, and financial markets went on to achieve new highs thanks to quantitative easing and other tricks such as driving real interest rates to zero. The financial bubble that should have collapsed in 2008 was expanded, and even a worldwide COVID-19 pandemic could not stop its growth thanks to the magic of stimulus payments to most U.S. citizens. No matter that the consumer was suddenly faced with skyrocketing expenses to purchase goods and services, all seemed well in Brigadoon until economic reality in the form of an out-of-control general price increase hit. These are measured as a Consumer Price Index, or CPI, a theoretical market basket of goods and services which critics point out is artificially created by the same federal government that is trying to convince its citizens that it has the economy under control. When that measure reached 10%, the Federal Reserve System that controls short-term interest rates found itself between a rock and a hard place. It was time to raise interest rates to be closer to market reality. The foundation for all of this banking manipulation can be found in Hamilton's report on a national bank. But Hamilton was not satisfied with just creating a crony relationship between the federal government and the banks. DiLorenzo goes on to explain. Hamilton was the intellectual leader of the group of men at the time of the founding who wanted to import the system of British mercantilism and imperialistic government to America. As long as they were on the paying side of British mercantilism and imperialism, they opposed it and even fought a revolution against it. But being on the collecting side was altogether different. It's good to be king, as Mel Brooks might say. It was Hamilton who coined the phrase the American system to describe his economic policy of corporate welfare, protectionist tariffs, central banking, and a large public debt. Even though his political descendants, the Whig party of Henry Clay, popularized the slogan. He was not well-schooled in the economics of his day, as is argued by such writers as John Steele Gordon. Unlike Jefferson, who had read, understood, and supported the free market economic ideas of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, John Baptiste Say, whom Jefferson invited to join the faculty of the University of Virginia, Richard Cantillon, and Turgot, a bust of whom still sits in the entrance to, the Mon to Monticello, um, Hamilton either ignored or was completely unaware of these ideas. Instead, he repeated the mercantilist myths and superstitions that had been concocted by apologists for the British mercantilist state, such as Sir James Stewart. Hamilton's final version of the report on the subject of manufactures to the Congress begins with this statement. At, uh, pardon me, um, the Secretary of the Treasury in obedience in obedience to the order of the House of Representatives of the 15th day of January 1790, has applied his attention at as early a period as his other duties would permit 
to subject to the subject of manufacturers and particularly to the means of promoting such as will tend to render the United States independent on foreign nations for military and other essential supplies. The first thing to be noted about this statement is that it reflects Hamilton's thinking as a classic mercantilist and isolationist on the issue of foreign trade. Notice the emphasis on the need for independence for military and other essential supplies. DiLorenzo sees an association between this independence from foreign suppliers and Hamilton's promotion of a large standing army. Hamilton argued for a large standing army not because he feared an invasion by France or England, but because he understood that the European monarchs had used such armies to intimidate their own citizens when it came to tax collection. Evidence of this is the fact that Hamilton personally led some 15,000 conscripts into western Pennsylvania with George Washington to attempt to quell the famous Whiskey Rebellion. We see the roots of Lyndon Johnson's imperialism in Vietnam and George W. Bush's imperialism in Afghanistan and Iraq with the Hamiltonian idea of a large standing army. Returning to the alleged advantages of protecting fledgling American manufacturers against suppliers from Britain and France in particular, Hamilton reveals his ignorance of modern economic theory with this statement. The expediency of encouraging manufacturers in the United States, which was not long since deemed very questionable, appears at this time to be pretty generally admitted. The embarrassments which have obstructed the progress of our external trade have led to serious reflections on the necessity of enlarging the sphere of our domestic commerce, the restrictive regulations which in foreign markets abridge the vent of the increasing surplus of our agricultural produce serve to beget an earnest desire that a more extensive demand for that surplus may be created at home. Hamilton appears to be ignoring fundamental economic laws of supply and demand. If the United States had a surplus of agricultural products, how does subsidizing the manufacturing sector improve the lot of the farmer? Agricultural surpluses already encourage manufacturing because they reduce the price of agricultural products, and thus the cost of labor in the manufacturing sector. Imposing a system of tariffs and subsidies, on the other hand, would penalize workers in the agricultural sector by taxing them for producing a surplus. The damage would not be limited to the agricultural sector, since all consumers would suffer. Regardless of Hamilton's faulty economics, his main appeal to Congress and ultimately to the entire political class, was to national independence and safety. In today's terms, Hamilton probably would have appealed to national independence and security. Even the language of political de debate remains the same 231 years later. His strategy, evident in his earlier writing in the Federalist Essays, is to establish a straw man. We see that in this statement in the report on manufacturers. It has been maintained that agriculture is not only the most productive, but the only productive species of industry. This is an attack on the physiocratic school of economics in France, which is acknowledged to have overemphasized the importance of agriculture as the only truly productive sector of the economy. But physiocracy was changing as Hamilton wrote this criticism. It was no longer dominated by Kinet, who was the strongest advocate of agricultural superiority, 
but had been modified and updated by Turgot and Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours. The latter emigrated to the United States in 1800 upon the recommendation by Jefferson not to farm, but to create a black powder mill on the Brandywine Creek. Even the latter part of the 18th century was clear that life was not so simple as Jeffersonian agriculture versus Hamiltonian manufacturing. After a lengthy lecture on economics, Hamilton laid the foundation for his argument for the encouragement of manufacturers. The United States are, to a certain extent, in a situation of a country precluded from foreign commerce. They can indeed, without difficulty, obtain from abroad the manufacturing supplies of which they are in want, but they experience numerous and very injurious impediments to the emission and vent of their own commodities. Nor is this the case in reference to a single foreign nation only. The regulations of several countries with which we had the most extensive intercourse throw serious obstructions in the way of the principal staples of the United States. Under this view, the United States were a victim of the unfair trading practices of foreign nations. Although this view has been thoroughly debunked by the success of classical liberalism in the latter half of the 19th century, this economic error has returned in full force with the China-bashing policy in the Trump administration shared by others outside of the Trump circle. While we may criticize current politicians for not paying attention to history, in fairness to Hamilton, as he composed the report on manufacturers, the obvious success of international free trade would only become apparent less than a century in the future. Hamilton's was a mercantilist perspective, and clear thinking about economics was effectively screened out. Still, this part of the picture should have been apparent to Hamilton when he wrote his report. 1. The War of Independence had removed the shackles of colonialism that had created barriers to free trade. 2. While every nation's government could, in theory, create barriers to free trade, they could only do that by disadvantaging the consumers of the nations imposing those barriers. 3. Of all nations on Earth, the United States were blessed with the natural defenses of great bodies of water to include the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the Gulf of Mexico. Its manufacturers need not fear the predatory actions of foreign invaders and thus require the expense of large standing armies. 4. It was not just an abundance of farm products, but a cornucopia of natural resources of all kinds with which the United States were blessed. It was as naturally independent as any nation on earth and needed no further encouragement by government. Although foreign manufacturing appeared to have the advantage over domestic manufacturing, major nations like Britain and France had no long-term advantage in terms of access to the raw materials of manufacturing, and they had immense the immense disadvantage of transporting manufactured products to markets over 3,000 miles distant. Wikipedia summarizes Hamilton's proposal to Congress. Hamilton reasoned that tariffs issued in moderation would raise revenue to fund the nation. The tariff could also be used to encourage domestic or national manufacturing and growth of the economy by applying the funds raised in part toward subsidies, then called bounties, to manufacturers. Hamilton sought to use the tariff for the following, 
One, protect domestic infant industries until they could achieve economics of scale and be able to compete with more established firms abroad. Two, raise revenue to pay the expenses of government. Three, raise revenue to directly support manufacturing through bounties or subsidies. Hamilton reasoned that bounties, subsidies to industry, which would rely on funds raised by moderate tariffs, would be the best means of growing manufacturing without decreasing the supply or increasing the prices of goods. Such encouragement by direct support would make American enterprise competitive and independent along with the nation as a whole. In part, the subsidies would be used for the following. One, encourage the nation's spirit of enterprise, innovation, and invention. Two, support internal improvements, including roads and canals, to increase and to encourage domestic commerce. Three, grow the infant nation to a manufacturing power that would be independent of control by foreign powers by relying on their goods for domestic, especially defense supplies. The effect on ordinary Americans has been quite the opposite. DiLorenzo's assessment fits Hamilton's legacy. Hamilton is perhaps best known among economists for his report on manufacturers. In his 1905 biography of Hamilton, William Graham Sumner wrote that Hamilton's report advocated the old system of mercantilism of the English school, turned around and adjusted to the situation of the United States. Thomas Jefferson also wrote that Hamilton's schemes for protectionism, corporate welfare, and central banking were the means which, by which the corrupt British system of government could be introduced in the United States. DiLorenzo concludes his article, Hamiltonian mercantilism is essentially the economic and political system that Americans have lived under for several generations now. A king-like president who rules through executive orders and disregards any and all constitutional constraints on his powers, state governments that are mere puppets of the central government, corporate welfare run amok, especially in light of the most recent outrage, the Wall Street plutocrat bailout bill, a $10 trillion national debt, or $70 million if one accounts for the government's unfunded liabilities, a perpetual boom and bust cycle caused by the Wizard of Oz-like central planners at the Fed, constant military aggression around the world that only seems to benefit defense contractors and other beneficiaries of the warfare state, and more than half of the population bribed with subsidies of every kind imaginable to support the never-ending growth of the state. This is Hamilton's curse on America, a curse that must be exercised if there is to be any hope of resurrecting American prosperity and freedom. But that was 2008, when the acknowledged national debt was $10 trillion. This is 2023, 15 years later, and the federal debt is $31.6 trillion and still climbing. Think of that $31.6 trillion as a transfer of wealth away from the productive, productive sector of the economy and those who earned that wealth through their productive efforts. And that doesn't even consider the taxes that Americans pay. Earlier in DiLorenzo article, uh, DiLorenzo's article, he had stated, <clears throat> Hamilton championed the cause of a large public debt, which he called a public blessing, not to establish the credit of the United States or to finance any particular public works projects, but for the Machiavellian idea of tying the interests of the more affluent to the state. Being government bondholders, they would, he believed, 
then support all of his grandiose plans for heavy taxation and a government much larger than was called, what was called for in the Constitution. A cynic once commented that Americans get the best government that money can buy. We are paying excessively for government, and that government goes beyond the cynicism of the best government money can buy. We are a long way from Jefferson's ideal of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hmm. Amen. Thank you, Phil. And, and indeed, uh, I guess you could say we are suffering under Hamilton's curse. I'm not sure as I'm reading DiLorenzo there of his uh, ideas that we got the ghost of Hamilton to contend with or just the curses that, that Hamilton left behind. Either way, it is a mess because Hamilton's vision of a large public debt. Yikes. <laughs> How much larger could we get? As you rightly pointed out, it's really not 31 trillion because if you talk about the unfunded mandates, so such as Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, on and on, list goes of promises that have been made to uh, current workers as well as to retirees that there's going to be money available for their Medicaid and for their Social Security check and so on. So really, it's well over 70 trillion and some would estimate it's above somewhere north of 100 trillion dollars, a gargantuan sum of money that's very, very hard for us to even begin to, to get our, our mind around how big that is. I'm told if you were sitting uh, count one uh, dollar at a time, you know, as fast as you could possibly count and not do anything but count that, uh, not eat, not sleep, not do anything other than that, uh, it, to count to, you know, a, a billion uh, would take you 32 years, 32 years of straight counting dollars. But to get to a trillion would take you 32,000 years, 32,000 years of counting one, two, three. Wow. It just just a little snippet of how enormous uh, that debt is that we have entered into. And, and you're absolutely right, Phil, and I appreciate your, your history on, uh, on what the, the economics of mercantilism, which we were seeking to escape from because we were on the uh, uh, non-beneficiary side, I guess you could say, as a colony, we were being used by the mercantile system. But uh, when we got on the other side of the thing, well, people like Hamilton want to say, okay, let's go ahead and, and do that to who? Who would be the our colonists that would suffer under us? And uh, the actual reality is it, it would mean because the design of Hamilton was there a collusion between the wealthy as well as the big businesses and government, which, by the way, big business and big government put together equals fascism, right? <laughs> That's the definition of what fascism is. But he believed that that would make a strong government. But who who's not part of that equation then? Well, it's the little guy, you know, the guy who uh, may be, you know, not not even an employer. He is, is uh, he's working for someone else or maybe a, a small businessman who has one or two employees. They're on the losing side of that arrangement because they don't have the possible uh, uh, depth of, uh, of resources to put themselves in a position to benefit from that mercantilist system whereby all the big companies definitely benefit in that system where the small guy does not. The big problem I see with Hamilton is he saw that our Constitution was a really not a fixed standard at all. He could make it into whatever he wanted it to be. I think uh, Thomas Jefferson is famous for describing this as taking a, a wax nose and warming it up enough to sh shape and twist that nose into whatever shape you wanted it to be in. 
because a wax nose is not a very fixed image. Uh, a rock nose, however, char uh, carved out of granite, that, that's a fixed nose. You're not going to change that nose easily. But a wax nose, uh, uh, Jefferson warned us, would be very, very dangerous to the liberties of the people. And so we need to really ask the question constitutionally, where was Hamilton coming from? How in the world could he look at the Constitution with a straight face and say, oh, yeah, of course, a national bank is permitted by the Constitution. And of course, this mercantilist system whereby the federal government is manipulating the tariffs to favor some industries or even some particular businesses or group of businesses. And of course, by favoring some, you're disfavoring others because whenever you raise a tariff, it means the cost of goods is more expensive. That is, the consumer is going to pay more and somebody's going to benefit. One of those connected, politically connected companies. But I think the, the best insight we have about Alexander Hamilton regarding his very flexible view of the Constitution, you know, he would be of the modern sort that talks about a living constitution, which I abhor. And I think everybody, if you really thought about it, you would not want a living constitution because you never know tomorrow what's going to change. You never have a fixed standard by which to operate. But it's interesting to look at the history of Alexander Hamilton as he attended the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. Now, uh, when he was there, he had his own agenda. Yes, James Madison presented the Virginia agenda and there was the New Jersey agenda that was also presented. And, and Hamilton had kind of his own and he almost took an entire day to present his agenda. And his agenda was wildly rejected because his agenda had something to do with almost a uh, almost a monarchy for the president of the United States, almost a hereditary monarchy. And, and some believe this is because uh, Alexander Hamilton knew he was very close to George Washington. Everybody expected George Washington would be the first president. And therefore, if there was this kind of, you know, a, a hereditary monarchy of some sort that it would get handed off from George Washington at his death, handed off to Alexander Hamilton. So some speculate that that was what uh, Hamilton was actually up to. But it was clear that the entire convention rejected Hamilton's ideas about this very, very strong executive branch. <coughs> Excuse me. They rejected it so soundly and so roundly that Hamilton left the convention in July, beginning of July, uh, early in July. And <coughs> he also left the convention because as a representative, as a delegate from the state of New York, there was two other delegates, Lansing and Yates, who were opposed to Hamilton on just about every single thing. So in terms of his state delegation to the convention, he lost almost every vote because he was outnumbered by uh, Lansing and Yates again and again and again and again. So in disgust, Alexander Hamilton left the Constitutional Convention at the beginning of July. But he came back. <coughs> and the curious thing is, why did he come back? Well, the interesting thing is uh, Lansing and Yates also left, but weeks after Alexander Hamilton, so towards the end of July, they left and returned to New York. They were disgusted with the direction of the convention as a whole. They thought the convention had uh, violated its uh, charter that was given to it uh, by each of the state legislatures that said, go uh, alter the Articles of Confederation. And uh, you can modify those, but that's all you can do. And they saw clearly that's not what the intent of the convention was. It was going to propose a brand new constitution. And so Yates and Lansing left in disgust, which gave Alexander Hamilton kind of a freedom to come back to the convention in August, which he did. 
And he participated in the debates, but because his delegation from New York now had no vote, basically, his single vote uh, wouldn't stand. It wouldn't be accepted. So uh, he could debate, but in a sense, he couldn't actually vote for any of the decisions being made by the convention for the rest of August and September. So actually, when Alexander Hamilton on the, on the 17th of September signed the Constitution, he was signing it as a private individual. He wasn't actually representing the state of New York because his delegation had not taken a vote. They had not authorized a vote to be taken regarding whether to sign uh, the Constitution or not. So given that, <coughs> it's kind of a curious thing that Alexander Hamilton left the convention when he saw that his design for the new Constitution was losing and was not going to win and that he was outvoted repeatedly by his delegation from the state of New York. But then when those other delegates from New York left, he returned because perhaps he saw, and this I, I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, but perhaps he saw that he could still have influence. And certainly if he was one of the signers and, you know, had, had a name in a sense that he was associated with the Constitution, would have an ability perhaps to see that the Constitution was ratified in a state like New York, which is one of the difficult states for its ratification, and that by doing so, he would have an upper hand in getting to interpret the document, interpret the Constitution the way he wanted it interpreted, not as it was written, not as it was signed and ratified, but as Alexander Hamilton's vision was. So it's kind of like he lost the debate and, you know, in a huff, he left. But he came back when he realized, oh, hey, I might still be able to accomplish my agenda anyway. Even though it's been defeated on paper, I can twist the paper. I can twist that nose of wax that uh, Thomas Jefferson describes. And I can accomplish my aim of a large federal government that is in control, riding astride uh, the economy, riding astride each of the big businesses, creating large deficits, uh, connecting itself with some respectability among the European banking houses because it borrows large sums of money and that sort of thing. All the things that he had envisioned for his idea of a strong central government, he lost in the debates in Philadelphia. But in a sense, you could say he won by his actions under uh, under the first presidency of, of George Washington and, and his second term in office as well, as he saw to his agenda being accomplished. And in these three uh, you know, reports on manufacturers were critical in that uh, attempt. And when we look at the long span of history here, we see that sadly, Hamilton won and Jefferson lost. I would much rather have it the other way around, that Jefferson's small government uh, a much hands off uh, in terms of the, the, the governmental involvement in the economy, no uh, large tariffs, uh, certainly no central bank. All the things that, that uh, Jefferson stood for are the opposite of where we are today. And sadly, the problem that we face with enormous and expanding at explosive rate, the kind of deficit that we face, and the result is going to be hyperinflation for we the people. All of these things are because of Hamilton's curse. Well, Phil, what other other thoughts do you have as as you look at these documents? Well, you you mentioned the the immensity of the public debt. Uh, I've seen some figures, and don't hold me to this in terms of precise numbers, um, but in terms of the magnitude, I think uh, we're in the ballpark here. I've seen numbers that uh, are something like two hundred and fifty million per taxpayer. Now, obviously. Nobody could pay that. 
you know, it's just it's just unbelievable. Or maybe that was a quarter of a million per, per taxpayer. These are immense numbers. Picture uh, everybody in the economy who's producing anything. Uh, that would be a larger number, by the way, because most do not contribute much to federal taxation. But just imagine having to write out checks of that size. I mean, it would destroy would destroy uh, families. I think another uh, perspective on this is um, the stimulus. Uh, this was a, a new idea. Um, basically, the idea that the government, in a very paternalistic way, could take its immense wealth and write out these checks for individuals individual taxpayers. This was bribery on a scale that we had never seen before. And I can recall the reactions to the, the bailouts of 2008 and 2009. I mean, the people were almost up in arms about what was going on. Uh, 75 to 80% opposed uh, Bush's bailouts. But I had not heard a single voice in complaint about the stimulus checks. Now, somebody had to pay for them because the government is is technically bankrupt as of 1971 when it failed to uh, uh, honor its debts to farm, foreign creditors, failed to pay in gold as it had uh, claimed it would. So it was beyond a shadow of a doubt, technically in bankruptcy from that point forward. So if you were bankrupt, you really have no ability to write checks and be charitable to others. You have nothing uh, upon which to to uh, write these checks. But nonetheless, we did it. We created money out of thin air. So then the question is, okay, if individual recipients got a dollar, let us say, how much went to special interests? Now, this was a central investigation in my book, A Tale of Four Cities. The numbers I have come up with and I've, I've included the complete logic for this, by the way, which is not that complex. Um, the number that I came up with is that for every dollar that went into an individual's pocket, $8 went into special interests. How can you possibly have a system more corrupt than that? And how can you possibly have a system that is, you know, brands the recipients, the victims in this case, as being as stupid as that? I mean, this is like a carnival huckster coming along and saying, hey, I can give you a dollar. It'll cost you eight dollars. The thing that uh, is clear is that our federal government has no money. It's not just uh, broke. If it was broke, it would be at zero, right? No, no, no. It's 31 trillion negative. So it's beyond. If it had 31 trillion right now to pay off all of its debts, then it would be broke. It would be flat broke. But it's got nothing except what it takes from we, the people. Uh, that's the tragedy of the situation here. People uh, somehow mythologically believe that the government has a, a magic fairy dust to create money out of thin air. It doesn't. The only way it exists is by the labor of we, the people. By the way, the government really does not produce anything. Other than debt, uh, I guess you might say that's a production, but I'm not sure it's a very valuable production. Consider, you know, a, a dog in the summertime. You know, if you have a dog in the summertime and it gets a tick, uh, that tick has a parasite living off the blood of your dog. And it will do uh, okay with one tick or two or three, but what if there's a hundred ticks on that dog? So there's a hundred bloodsuckers taking out the resources that this dog is producing. Well, that dog's not going to make it. That dog's going to die. Uh, it, it cannot survive that. And this is the problem. What we have seen is 
that the offer has been made. And I think that, Phil, that stimulus check idea is a, is a good one to, to work with because people have been offered something as if it's for free, as if it costs no one nothing. But that's a myth and a lie. It will cost us and it'll cost us dearly. The only thing the government has done is it kicked the can down the road so that we don't face immediately the consequences of those stimulus payouts that uh, took place during COVID for individuals. And as you point out, eight times more a special interest groups. Now, there's the ultimate mercantilist system. You get soaked as the as the citizen and taxpayer and some special interest group, a company, a NGO, whatever it might be, actually gets benefits from you. And the trick is you don't get to see that or you, you may not understand the sleight of hand taking place. But we are beginning to see the results of that with the inflation that we have experienced thus far. And by the way, you mentioned the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. That's a number manipulated by the government to try to persuade us that inflation is not as bad as it actually is. (laughs) Other groups that are independent of the government have actually reported a much, much higher number in terms of actual inflation. And uh, we face a crisis in in the days ahead because our dollar has been accepted as a world reserve currency now for, oh, since Bret Woods, uh, well, for the, since the uh, the uh, treaty with OPEC and so forth, with an agreement to say that all dollars, all, all oil will be bought only with dollars. Therefore, anybody around the world that wanted to get oil had to have U.S. dollars to get it. And so there was an unnatural connection being made where people wanted dollars because they had to use them to purchase oil. Well, that's been broken. China now has a deal with Saudi Arabia to use the yuan as a means of of currency and other countries as well are breaking away. So that petrodollar system is breaking down, the result of which will be all those trillions of dollars that have been held by other countries around the world in order to buy oil, they're going to view them as worth less than other currencies, which means they will dump them. And as they dump them, we're going to see inflation like we just cannot believe, in my estimation. Your thoughts, Phil? Well, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, uh, I've had an opportunity to uh, uh, to follow this. Uh, a friend of mine who is an economist and uh, somebody who is local uh, is particularly tuned into the European and, and the, the British uh, monetary systems. Um, it's even worse over there in terms of of uh, the departure from economic reality. Um, I mean, the the banking system. Uh, we've we've seen some of of the uh, uh, the damage that has been done uh, with uh, Silicon Valley uh, Bank, with Signature Bank, and uh, uh, First Republic, I believe, is another one. But uh, basically. <clears throat> Uh, what we're seeing in those cases is just the tip of the iceberg. And some of the United States banks uh, are in better shape than the European banks, which is just amazing. I, you know, it's, it's hard to picture how these, uh, this can keep afloat. And, and all of these pieces are tied together. This is the thing that most people don't understand is that it's, you're not just dealing with the, uh, uh, the, the loss of the, the dollar as a world currency. I mean, you're dealing with uh, the the debt. You're dealing with the, the entire uh, scheme of, of printing money because there is no way out of this as far as the government is concerned other than creating money out of thin air. And what that means is that if you put your, your dollars into the, the bank, uh, <clears throat> you are lo- losing it. You are 
100% guaranteed to lose a significant amount uh, on uh, that so-called investment. Uh, my son has done some extensive work in this case, and I think that what he found is that uh, for these uh, bonds, uh, something like a 20-year bond, um, you're going to lose 40% of its value over time. Now, what that does is to put immense pressure on the banks. And the, the banks have in the past been a part of uh, the fractional reserve system, which does um, increase the, the supply of money. So what's happening is that uh, the regulators have been looking at one kind of risk, credit risk. And on the other hand, um, what they're they're not looking at is interest rate risk. The whole scheme of the regu of regulata regulation has been based upon um, the the former, whereas the latter is what uh, you know can overnight uh, just destroy a bank because depositors right now may have been willing to put their dollars in the bank and and receive virtually nothing for it, but now you can even get government bonds at an increased rate uh, more directly. So why go through the banks? And that in that, <clears throat> we're looking at the possibility of a lot of money flowing out of the banks. And just imagine what that's going to do to the economy. Uh, long term, it's a good thing because we have to take some very bitter medicine. But in the short term, look out. There's going to be a lot of pain to go around. And one of the things that I've been reading about is that the Federal Reserve is now proposing a digital currency for the United States, central bank digital currency. Basically, it's called FedNow is, is what I understand the title. If they, Maybe they'll change it in time or whatever. But the idea is that uh, they're going to take advantage of an economic disaster that's, that's coming our way and I, I think is unavoidable at this point in time. It's, it's like a, a meteor heading to Earth. It's going to hit just a matter of when and where uh, and uh, what kind of damage is going to be done. But uh, in other words, I think they're taking the old adage, never let a, a crisis go to waste. So this coming financial crisis, what I think they're going to push for is everybody go for digital currency. That is, okay, yeah, those deposits you had in the bank, uh, they're worthless. We all agree that, you know, you can't buy or sell because the inflation is so extreme, but we've got an offer for you. We'll exchange that for a digital wallet where we've got these, uh, you know, financial instruments that are completely digital. And that is the solution to the problem. And I, I, th I think that's kind of what I, I'm hearing is going to be uh, pushed. And I know the Fed is already experimenting with this central bank digital currency and uh, advocating for it with, uh, you know, different economists saying, here's the way out and here's the way to make a whole lot of money in the future and those kind of promises. But think about the problem of a digital currency. And by the way, a programmable digital currency. And they have this in China today that uh, your money is on this supposed computer. And when you go to purchase something, you're going to use your QR code. And uh, the digital currency that supposedly is in your bank account will be accessed by you if the authorities permit you to purchase what you're trying to purchase. Now, maybe you, you've bought a T-bone steak the night before and they decide, no, no, you've got this digital currency, but you can't buy a T-bone steak on a second night in a row, or you bought this dress and we don't want you, you know, in other words, they can actually program your currency to prohibit you from buying what they don't want you to buy or for uh, uh, basically punishing you for bad behavior. Oh, we saw you on our, our CCTV jaywalking across the street. 
and we're identifying you by facial recognition software, we know exactly who you are, and we have a connection to your bank account, your digital bank currency, and we're going to reduce your ability to use that money because we are in control of that money. So it's the ultimate enslavement is what I look at the digital currency to be because it puts the government in the driver's seat of your money. Do you have your money? Can you use your money? Can you do anything you want with that money or not? That's all dependent upon who's in control of that digital currency. So when you have digital currency, I I really believe you have a, a slave system in which the supposed owner of that digital currency really has no control over that currency. And if he's a good little boy, then the masters who are in control are going to allow him to do certain things, but only those things that they permit him to do. And that, to me, spells the end of our liberty. Well, that, I I believe you have hit the nail on the head. Um, Basically, we are moving towards enslavement. Um, We are on what uh, Friedrich Hayek uh, once titled in a book, uh, we are on the road to serfdom with that. And basically, if if you can control the currency uh, through methods like um, you know, requiring legal tender, uh, specifying what legal tender is and that kind of thing, um, by being able to create it out of thin air. I mean, basically what you're doing is ultimately taking the entire money system, the entire money, uh, the, the entire system of facilitating exchange, which is the fundamental driver of uh, Western civilization when you think of it. You're basically undermining that, that whole thing and moving us uh, you know, beyond 1984, it seems to me, worse than 1984, George Orwell's 1984. Uh, think of it in, in terms of something like, well, we've been conditioned to believe that if we work hard, we earn some money, we uh, uh, contribute to organizations that, that are promoting liberty, such as the Mises Institute, um, we are you know, doing our part. That's the way to to undo the evil. No, no, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, because as soon as you write a check for the Mises Institute, you're going to have the feds banging on your door. And they'll they'll bring 15 agents and and, uh, automatic weapons to enforce their will too. Have no doubts about that. I mean, this is the Chinese system. When you think of it, the Chinese system is already in place. And basically, uh, they have you know, a, a system in which you have social merits and demerits that are uh, created on you as an individual by the government. And as long as you have enough merits, you can survive. But if you have too many demerits, uh, you're not going to survive. I mean, you will, be, you will be outed in a way that the woke generation has never even thought possible. And we see some things, at least in my own personal experience, already pushing us in the direction of a digital currency. I was in the, the post office. Oh, I believe that's a federal institution. Last I checked, it's, a, it's one of the f- few things the federal government does that's constitutional. But anyway, I was in the post office. They would not accept cash. Wait a minute. This cash says, you know, legal tender for all debts, public and private. How can the federal government refuse to accept its own currency? That's what they're doing in the post office and, uh, you know, public storage, uh, you know, a facility where you rent space. They have now turned off the option of paying in cash. 
You can only pay by credit card. And, uh, you know, other businesses, uh, uh, physical therapy was a pivot physical therapy. They refused to accept cash payments of any sort whatsoever. So business, many, many businesses are pushing us in the direction of saying we're going to get rid of cash. We're not going to allow people to use cash. But that's a basic violation of the agreement that's right there on the paper. It's the legal tender laws that say this piece of paper has to be accepted. And I haven't tried it yet, but maybe it would, you know, especially with the uh, uh, the government institutions say, hey, wait a minute, if you are refusing payment, I have offered you payment. You are refusing payment. So I will just take the goods and walk out the door because I've offered payment and you're refusing payment that is legal tender. So there is nothing else needed to take place. I've offered payment. You have refused payment. And uh, therefore, you're in violation of the law. So I don't, you know, I haven't gotten up the guts yet to, to try that. But uh, I, I imagine they might call the police or something like that. But what, what, what argument could they have? It says right there on, on the paper pr- printed by the, the government itself, this piece of paper has to be accepted. It is the legal tender laws. And they, including the government, are increasingly refusing to accept such currency, such paper uh, for payment of goods or services. That's outrageous. But I, I can see that the noose is being tightened, pushing us in the direction of, of a digital currency. Well, Mike, are you there? Do you, do you have any, any thoughts on this? Or have you been captured by the uh, uh, the goons or the gendarmes there in the courtroom and <laughs> dragged away? Uh, Mike, are, are we, I'm not hearing anything from you. Well, we'll be praying that, uh, that you are, are freed from whatever situation you have there. But uh, uh, we appreciate your thoughts if, if you could chime in. But go ahead, Phil. Okay. Uh- yeah, I think you're absolutely correct about that. Uh, it's it's just a, a situation which I think requires a lot of understanding. Um, l- let me go back to the uh, a, a comparable experience I had uh, in a grocery store um, supermarket, and they had the normal the normal lines where you could pay cash, and then they had these automatic machines, and it said no cash allowed. There's a distinction between that and what you ran into in the post office. And I think the distinction is this, that you are given options. Um, you know, if you want to go through the, the, the ordinary line, you can do that. Your cash will be honored. Okay, And receiving cash requires that somebody take a look at that. And, you know, they, they're given some rules about uh, look, look for a $20 bill. If you see this, you know, it's counterfeit. You know, so... That's very understandable. And why you would not uh, accept cash uh, on a machine, that's also understandable. That's the free market at work. But what you encountered was something fundamentally different. When you went to that counter, you were dealing, number one, not with a uh, an organization in the free market sector of the economy. You were dealing with the government. The Postal Service is a monopoly run by the government. Okay. You had one choice. That is to do it their way or not at all. There is something fundamentally wrong about that. That's where somebody has to step up and say, no, sorry, we're not going to do it your way. This is what the law specifies. And I haven't done this yet, but I need to. It's on my to-do list among thousands of other things. But to to contact my congressman and say, look, and my senators and say, look, there's a violation of the law going on that you have direct control over. You need to rein in the, you know, the U.S. Postal Service and tell them they will accept legal tender and stop this foolish game. So obviously in that situation, we can push back 
But we also need to push back, I think, with businesses and say, well, hey, if a business refuses to accept cash, I'm just going to refuse to do business with them. I'll go find somebody else that will do you know, public storage or physical therapy or whatever it is. Uh, if enough people were to push back against the companies, we would find those companies uh, rethinking their push towards digital currency. We'd find that the, uh, the numbers add up. And it's interesting to see kind of the, the uh, pushback going on against Bud Light, for example. <laughs> oh, Bud Light, they stepped into a trap. It was so stupid uh, for them to do so. But the pushback from the consumer is, we don't have to drink your swill. We're going to go to whatever other, you know, we don't want your, your Bud Light because you've associated it with a transgender uh, idiocy that we have no part of and don't want any part of, and we're not going to support. So we also, as a consumer, I think, could have pressure on those companies that are pushing us in the direction of that. But it takes a little bit more work on our part, and it takes a little bit more work to pay in cash. And I try to, as much as I can, pay in cash because I know the push we see. And if we don't resist the push, they're going to steamroll us very quickly here, and we'll be in that Chinese system, as you described, Phil. Well, I think you've made an exceptional point. Now is the time to to kick back. Don't wait until... The legislation is even being considered uh, in Congress. That may be too late. Push back now at this level and they will back off. You get it to Congress and they start to argue about this. And the only thing you're going to get out of that process is perhaps uh, a, a little compromise here or there, a meaningless compromise, and you'll have the main devil that you have to deal with. So I think you, you've made a, an exceptional point. Uh, let me go back to the idea of the central centralizing banking. I mean, basically, central banking has gotten all of these nations in trouble simultaneously. They've tried to work with each other, but of course, they're independent organizations. There are going to be differences. And so there is a sense of, of competition that remains. Not much, but there still is some competition, as we see uh, with the, the Chinese and the, the Russians and so forth saying, hey, we're not going to go down this road any longer. Okay, so obviously, if you, if you change that and have a single supplier of, uh, of money, basically, creating money out of thin air, you have nothing left. It's all over. Game is lost. Now, how far have we gone with this so far in the United States? Uh, I believe we have a protectorate over the island of Palau in the Pacific, and that island is under the uh, digital currency. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. I had not heard that. So it's actually been implemented in one part. Hmm. Get, that's right. Wow. Well, this has been a fascinating series looking at Hamilton's curse, really, and the three uh, uh, reports on manufacturers. Next week, we're going to start a brand new series looking at our Constitution and perhaps proposing something uh, brand new, something radical. Join us again uh, next Friday morning, 8 a.m. at WFYL here on We the People, The Constitution Matters. <laughs>